own voice out this evening. Well, when I talk of a subject tonight, I hope and pray it's a blessing to you. I do believe it's a blessing to our Lord. We're going to come out of Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be there here shortly tonight. We have a bit of a lengthy introduction, not very long, I would say. Two quick points, and then uh, we'll finish the rest of the message all tonight with the, the, the point number three this evening. But I want to ask you a question. I want to open up the scene and ask you this. That have you ever considered what makes Jesus joyful? What is the, the joy of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Because in, in, in our life and in our society, especially our culture today, it seems as if everyone is chasing what is good for them. Now, I understand that we should work to be better in our life. I believe that we should be better today than we were yesterday. I think we put 100% effort in our world today. Uh, there's a 1% change for ourselves tomorrow. I believe in that. I think that you should make all the changes in your life to be a better person today for yourself tomorrow. I have nothing against that, but I am asking you this question. When's the last time you considered what makes joy in Jesus's life? What makes Jesus have joy in his days? What, what makes him happy? And I know the two are not the same. I realize that happiness is a result of uh, what happens uh, joy and rejoicing is a completely different thing altogether. In all fairness, it's quite possibly possible to be unhappy and yet still have joy in your life. And that's a, a discussion and a topic for a later date. Uh, but I do want you to have that question bouncing around in your heart and your mind tonight. What makes Jesus joyful? What brings joy to his life? I want you to think about it for just a moment. And Paul, the, the Apostle Paul, gives us instructions. He says in Philippians chapter um, 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I actually have this Bible verse right here printed out and stuck up. In, it's falling down now. I've got to put it back. But stuck up in the right side of my windscreen, my driver's side, all the way corner. Why do I have that? Can anybody tell me other than these two? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, 20 mile an hour speed limit, maybe? Yeah. Who knows? Uh, traffic curve? Yeah, I, I have that there as a reminder, a continual reminder rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And I, and I have to be reminded of that because. The things in our world today do cause you to lose joy and definitely happiness, we understand. But Paul gives instructions, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. And he says, always, and again I say rejoice. First Thessalonians chapter 5, his first letter he writes, verse 16. He simply says rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. Now, here's what I want you to understand about these two verses, and there's a multitude more that Paul had written. Seeing that Paul would have learned this very point, to rejoice evermore, to rejoice, and again I say, uh, rejoice in the Lord always, he would have learned this by revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in the letter written to the Philippians, Paul uses the word rejoice ten times. Another six times he uses the word joy in a very short letter written back to the church of uh, Philippi. Now, I'm nearly certain in all my heart, this may be a bit of speculation if you would like to call it that, but I'm nearly certain tonight that it would have been a topic that he would have taught in Antioch, which was the first Gentile church where the disciples were first called Christians, okay? They were saved, born-again individuals, and they were called Christians by the world, not because of, a, uh, of the, the name they put on their church out there, not because they were a member of the church. They had been saved for an entire year, Paul and Barnabas get there, and he teaches for an entire year, and all of a sudden the world starts calling them Christians, okay, because of how they live, how they act. I, I, I'm completely certain in my heart tonight that joy would have been one of the topics that Paul would have spoken on and taught on to that church. But again, I come back to our original question. What makes Jesus joyful? What makes Jesus rejoice in his heart tonight? What would make him rejoice evermore? 
You know, there's a few things that I believe that while the Lord was on this earth, that he was joyful about. I'm quite sure that the Lord was joyful when he called Andrew and Simon Peter and the two brothers, when he called them to follow them and they accepted the call. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18 through 20 says, And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting them into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets, and they followed him. I guarantee you today that as he walked by and saw those brothers uh, casting that net out of their work, and he says, Come and follow me, and they left everything and they followed him, I bet there's joy brought in Jesus' heart. I honestly think uh, two other apostles that he called, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, they were known as the sons of thunder, according to Mark chapter 3, verse 17. I don't know about you. That's the guys I want on my team. I want two guys that are known as the sons of thunder tonight. That would make me joyful, I guarantee you. So I think the Lord was joyful when he got John and James, the sons of thunder. Sounds like a wrestling duo, doesn't it? What about the centurion that came to Jesus? What about that centurion that came that wanted his servant to be healed and exercise his faith that was unseen in all of Israel? Luke chapter 7 and verse 9 tells us, And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him about and said, Under the people that follow him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. I think when the Lord said that, there was joy in his heart. I think he had joy. Or what about the Syrophoenician woman? I know I use her quite often in the illustrations, but i got to be honest, it's such a small little event in the Holy Scriptures, but it's such a broad, huge meaning. This Syrophoenician woman came to the Lord on her knees. She was seeking a spiritual cleansing. Her, her daughter was possessed of a devil. She ignored being called a dog. Remember that the meat is not to be given unto the dogs, the Lord says to her. She ignored being called a dog, but rather used it to show the faith that she had that Jesus could make her daughter whole. In Matthew chapter uh, 15, this is what we read. And, and she said, Truth, Lord, yet dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said, uh, said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole that very hour. My soul, I guarantee you, there's joy in Jesus' heart. So in all of these cases, and no doubt there's many, 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 many more, I believe that Jesus had joy, that he was rejoicing in his heart by the actions and what had happened by these other people, whether it's following him or whether it was faith in him, one of the two. But to truly address the question that we have tonight, what brings joy to Jesus today? I want you to imagine with me, just quickly tonight, Imagine with me that you're a practitioner of some sort, some type of clinician, some type of physician, surgeon, whatever it may be. And you've trained all your life. You have got the experience. You've got the knowledge to know how. And the Lord lays upon your heart to go to a certain place in the world who who really doesn't have uh, quality health care, doesn't have health care at all, doesn't, maybe a third world country, maybe not, who knows. But but the Lord's laid it on your heart. And man, you get your stuff all together. You're in a place in your life. You've worked all your life. You're ready to go. And here you go with all your knowledge. You set set up your location. Uh, you've got your clinic room. you got your rehab facility. you got your medications. you got everything. You start introducing yourself to people in the community. And you tell them what you're there for. And you see people with ailments and with pain and suffering. And they come to you and they say, no, I'm good, man. I can handle it. I'm all right. I appreciate the offer, but we're okay. You think you'd be depressed? Give them everything. 
I mean, you know, here you are, you got the knowledge, you got the medication, you got the ability to heal, to help people heal. And they say, no, I'm all right. We're just going to stick with it. How do you think that clinician would feel? That practitioner? He'd be depressed, wouldn't he? Distraught. Don't you think he'd be down? And then all of a sudden one day, just imagine this with me. Somebody shows up with an ailment. And they come into your clinic. And you give them the right medication. And you prescribe what you need to be prescribed. You diagnose, you treat them. And the man gets better. And the people of the community see that that guy got better. And then the next one comes, and the next one comes, and the next one. All of these things happen. The townsfolk begin to come to this practitioner. All your labor, help others in need, all your experience, you're able to put it, listen carefully, to good use. How would you feel? That's called joy. That's called joy when you're able to do what God has called you to do and to make a difference in the lives of someone else. So our text verses tonight, we're only going to look at one, but we're going to read two. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I'm going to pause there just for a second. This great, uh, this, this great cloud of witnesses here, Hebrews chapter 12 is on the backside, obviously, of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Hall of Faith. These people here, these witnesses, they're not in heaven looking down at you tonight, cheering you on, telling you, go get them, tiger. That's not what that means. I've heard many, many men preach that, and they're wrong. See, what that is, is those witnesses is a testimony that we have, that we can follow their pattern. The great faith they had in Hebrews chapter 11, Paul comes into Hebrews chapter 12 saying, wherefore? What does it mean? Wherefore is following the chapter before. <laughs> saying that we are, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight in the sea that so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down the right hand of the throne of God. I want us to break down briefly, just by way of introduction, verse 2, just real quick tonight. The Bible tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, he becomes an example for us to follow. A pattern, if you will. We've heard that all year, uh, this year. The next part of the verse says, uh, who for the, watch this, the joy that was set before him. There was joy on the other side of an event worth experiencing. Get that with me. Just let that stick into your head tonight. Joy was over here. Jesus was here. The author finished our faith. And somewhere between Jesus and joy, there's something that had to be experienced. But he says, it's worth it so I can get to my joy. The next part says that he endured the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Despising the shame is the next portion that it says. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Curses every one that hangeth on a tree. And then again, finally, the close of the verse says, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So at first glance, one would think that the joy that's set before the Lord would be sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and likely so. 
uh, to a certain degree. And I'm sure there was joy there, uh, you know, for, for seeing that the first time in eternity past, uh, eternity future, and the present state of the world at the time when, when Jesus Christ was on that cross, that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Father were separated for a three-hour period of time when darkness came on this world so that Jesus Christ could become sin for us and pay mankind's sin debt. Undoubtedly, Jesus was joyful when he was reunited with the Father. Remember when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane and the Bible says that he wept tears of blood? And he said, Father, if there be another way, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. You know what that cup was? It wasn't the scourge of the crucifixion, the, re the, rebel uh, the betrayal, uh, the crown of thorns, the humiliation, what any of those things. It was the simple separation between God the Father and God the Son. Because that's what had to happen for the sin that to be paid. Had to happen. So yeah, there was joy, but I don't believe that's the joy it's referred to in Hebrews 12, and here's why. Because the moment Jesus Christ gave up the ghost into thy hands, I yield my spirit. Him and the Father reunited again. When Jesus Christ was in the heart of the earth and went and preached unto men, him and the Father were already reunited. When he took captivity captive after he ascended the third day, or rose again the third day, ascended up to heaven, put his blood upon the mercy seat there, returned back to this earth for the remainder of the 40 days before he ascended outside of Bethany, being seen of over 500 people, and then is set down on the right hand of the Father. They were reunited. Just is that triune God that they are. So there's another joy that Paul is referring to in here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. This, this joy is different. This joy, as a matter of fact, is very similar to the joy that, of the practitioner we spoke about just a moment ago. That practitioner who worked his entire career to get to a place where he could devote his life to helping those in need free of charge. And he was unwanted and he was miserable, but when he, he was joyful and he was awarded the opportunity put his gifts and his experience to work. This is the joy that I'm speaking of tonight. This is the joy of Jesus who needed to endure the cross so mankind could be saved and sealed into the day of redemption. So the first thing that we see tonight, very first thing quickly, we see joy that was set before. Verse 2, we find there is a joy that is set before. There, meaning there's something that he must endure. There's something that he must perform in order for this joy to become a reality in his life. But this joy would, would only be made available if the Lord would take on board what was needed to give him the power to reconcile mankind back to the Father. Colossians chapter 1 tells us this, where it pleased the Father that in him, speaking of Jesus, should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by, uh, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether it be things in earth or in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. In the body of his flesh, through death, through the present, uh, to present you holy and unblameable, unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled. Be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, which we which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am a minister. This is where Jesus finds his joy, guys. Reconciling mankind to the Father. That's where Jesus Christ finds his joy. Being willing to take on board what was before him, the shameful death on the cross, in order to be able to cleanse sin for all who freely will choose to accept the gift of salvation. I want to emphasize that point. He's not going to force his salvation on you. A gift is no longer a gift if it's for him. 
A gift is something you receive, not that you require. It is free. So my friend, that's where Jesus finds his joy. In forgiving sins, forgiving souls for all eternity. Secondly, we find that there is joy sitting. There's joy sitting. We must remember the purpose of Paul's letter writing the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the high priest who ends all high priests. He becomes the final sacrifice to cleanse instead of cover sins. He made two, one, bringing peace in our life. And it brings joy to him as well. We find Paul mentioned this in his letter to the, the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, For he is our peace who hath made both one, and hath broken down the little wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments containing the ordinances, for making himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. When Paul says we both, what he's referring to is both Jew and Gentile. There was a middle wall of partition that separated those aliens who was all everyone in here is a Gentile. Well, we're a Gentile. And in the synagogues in these different areas, when Paul came to Ephesus, we find this in Acts chapter 19, he was there for three years. Uh, he, he built a, a, a Bible school there. He sent out preacher boys planting churches from there. Um, and they had to kill him, nearly kill him to get him out of there. But, uh, but he, the first place he went and preached was a synagogue. And he, he disputed and preached in the synagogues, and he left, went to the house of Jason, and you know, Tyrannus, and all this and that, and everything started. Anyway, in the synagogues, the way they were constructed in, the, in these Gentile Roman cities was you would have a first floor and a second floor. The first floor had a wall. Some of them had uh, concrete walls, block walls, stone walls. Some of them were just separated by a curtain. But there was a divider. And that divider separated the Jewish men and the Gentile men. And in the second level, and I have no record, I haven't seen anything historically of whether or not the women were separated, but I would imagine they would have been up in the second levels where the women would, would sit for the synagogue. The reason for that was the Jews were very adamant thinking that if women, if they had a mixed congregation, men would be distracted from listening to the reading of the scriptures, okay? As if men aren't distracted by everything and anything anyway. You can take the women out of there, you're going to get distracted over supper, aren't you? So, But that was the middle wall. Paul is a master in using illustrations to bring what is current into people's mind. That middle wall of separation, he says he's made both one. Both Jew and Gentile, the Jew who was nigh, the Gentile who was afar off, Jesus Christ, the one spirit, one blood, one sacrifice, has broken that wall down. So today that there was joy in him sitting at the right hand of the Father, because now there's peace inside of our lives. The joy of Jesus is when he's enabled to exercise his healing forgiveness in the willing soul. But the sitting at the right hand of the Father is significant for us to understand because it signifies something finished. And what was finished was the breaking down of that wall of separation. Hebrews chapter 1 also tells us, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1, Now the things which we have spoken this in, in the sum, we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And then finally in Hebrews 10, 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand 
of God. In all three of these texts, guys, we see a concluding atoning work of Jesus as the final high priest. As he sat down at the right hand of the Father, reconnecting heaven and earth once again through his sacrifice on the cross, thus becoming a mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You don't have to go through me to get to Christ. You don't have to, you don't have to go through another man. You don't have to go in a, a wooden box. Or, you don't have to go through anyone at all to get to God. You go through Jesus Christ. You know who cares? They're the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Trinity, working in the entire thing. So finally, guys, we've seen there is joy in Jesus set before him, which caused him to endure the cross before he experienced the joy. We see there's joy in sitting at the right hand of the Father, and now he becomes our mediator, our go-between, our propitiation, if you will. But I want you to understand tonight that there's joy secure. There's joy secure. And I come back to the, to the joy of Jesus this evening. What makes him joyful? The payment to secure souls of men, women, and children for all eternity. He secured it on the death of the cross, the shameful, explicit death of the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, Whom God has set, uh, set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare the righteousness of the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. My friend, I want you to understand something here tonight, and we're going to get a little bit deep here this evening, and we'll be done. But I never want you to confuse the payment on the cross as being easy. There's nothing easy about it. The events of Calvary, guys, are as horrific as they were heroic. Say that again. The events of Calvary are as horrific as they were heroic. Our world has sanitized the day of the cross of Calvary. And they sanitized it to the point that we are unmoved anymore. Yet the events of this very day is what has secured our soul in salvation. It's the events of this very day that enables Jesus to sit at the right hand of the throne of God as our mediator. It's the events of this day which were, uh, were set before the joy of Jesus to reconcile men and women uh, to, the, to the Father who, who choose to accept that free gift. And it is that gift that is free, but it is only free to the recipient. Our understanding of the crucifixion is paramount in how we act and react to the joy of Jesus. Much of our suffering and pain that we experience is brought on by what I call a disillusion of the cross. Our own belief about what actually happened on the cross of Calvary. But we make poor choices in our life many times, not because we forget what Jesus did, but because we have an inappropriate view of how he did it. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Guys, I realize that it can be quite difficult to, to reconcile in your mind the fact that Jesus on this earth was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. I understand it, but it's true. And his suffering on the cross was nothing compared to any kind of suffering we'll ever experience on this earth. We have not seen a shred of suffering and pain remotely close to the cross of Calvary. But our image, our imagination, our memory of what we have seen and developed in our mind and the events of the cross have a long-standing effect on our outcome in life. The choices we make. The decisions we have. The invites to church. The sharing of the gospel. All of these are related to the image we have in our minds concerning the suffering of the cross. 
You say, how in the world? You know, we've developed what's known as a conditioned learning on what happened on the cross through a series of things. We've, we've, con we've been conditioned in learning of what happened on the cross through paintings, through films, through artwork, photos, what, you know, and yeah, our own interpretation our own, in our minds. The Bible tells me that Jesus was beaten and bludgeoned. Now, here's what's funny about that. Not funny, ha-ha. But our society today, if you use that word beaten and bludgeoned in a general conversation, they'll lose their ever-loving mind. They will pop their court because they're so snowflake weak. But yet they'll go to a three-hour film with blood and gore and, mm -hmm. and wicked or a concert that's got all this vile nonsense at that, that not a soul should be. They'll go to that and thrash around and act a fool and act as stupid as you can be. But then when you mention it in the sentence that Jesus was beaten and bludgeoned, oh, their little panties get a wad, don't they? 741 years before this day, the prophet Isaiah said this. He says, As many were stony that thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than any sons of men. He wasn't even recognizable as a human being on that cross. Have you ever wondered why? Pontius Pilate had, sent, had the, the sign written upon the cross, the king of the Jews in three different languages. Now the Jews, they, they, oh, they hated that. They, they rebelled against that. He did that as a testimony of who it was. As a testimony, I've done what you've chosen. He wasn't even recognizable as a human when they were finished with him. You see, you get a reality of that tonight in your mind, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you invite people to church. It'll change people the way you share the gospel. It'll change the way you act in these days. It'll change the way you think of Jesus' joy. He was stripped naked. Psalm 22, 18 tells us that they parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are known as Messianic Psalms. They are prophetical psalms of what was going to happen, 22 being the crucifixion, 23 being the resurrection, 24 being the millennial kingdom. John chapter 19, verse 1 tells us, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. You know, the word scourge means pull apart. You make a scourge. How do you make a scourge? You pull bits and pieces of leather apart. And we call it today a cat and nine tails. But inside those pieces of leather, leather was interwoven of pieces of metal, of bone, and stone, and rock, and all these different bits and bobs. And so the scourge is not a whip, as we would think, but rather a device that would literally flay the flesh off of someone's back. The scourge would cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissue. It produces first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins and the skin and finally spurting out through the arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. Small pieces of metal, stone, and bone would rip apart the flesh across the back. And finally, the skin of the back would hang in long ribbons as the entire area was unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. That's what he experienced. That's what he experienced. That's what he endured so that he could have joy. Let it sink in tonight. 
John 19.2 tells us, and the soldiers plied a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Within our scalp, we have five layers of skin on our scalp. There's eight nerve innervations in our scalp. It's one of the most vascularized areas and most, most hypersensitive areas on our body. Three plus inch thorns would have been driven down into his scalp and innervating uh, or hitting those nerve innervations and the bleeding would be just unbelievable. After mocking him and striking him across the face, they would take the stick they had placed in his hand and, and strike him across the head and drive those thorns in ever so deeper. They would remove the robe from his back that was placed on him after the scourging. The coagulation of the blood now set to the threads of the of the robe would now just reopen the wounds. Excruciating pain would go throughout his entire body as if he was being beaten once again. At the cross, the legionnaire would take and find that depression there in his in his wrist or in just below what we call today the hand. They would take a heavy wrought iron nail and they would drive it into the wrist, into the hand there, into the wood and quickly do the same thing on the other side. And they would lift him up on that crossbeam and place him on that tree, if you will, on that stake that would have been in the ground. They'd leave a little flexion in the elbows for a slight amount of movement. He would then take the left foot and he would press it backwards against the right foot, leaving both of them extended, toes down, and another five to seven inch nail be driven through the arch of each feet leaving the knees moderately flexed in order for him to push up his ribcage to be able to take in a little bit of air. His body was slowly sagged down as more weight of resting on the nails, excruciating pain shooting along the fingers, up the arm, exploding in the brain, and the nails in the wrist putting the pressure on the median nerve would set his body ablaze. His central nervous system would literally feel as if it was on fire. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, guys, he places the full weight of his body upon that nail in his feet and the cross beam and the underneath the heels, fulfilling Genesis chapter 3, that his heel will be bruised with the head of Satan. At this point, guys, his arms will be fatigued, great waves of cramps will sweep over his muscles, knotting in deep and relentless throbbing pain. And, and with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. He's hanging by his arm. His pectoral muscles now are paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can't even be drawn into his lungs. And Jesus would fight himself in order to get even one short breath Finally, carbon dioxide would build up in his lungs and his bloodstream, and, and the cramps would partially subside, and spasmodically he would, he would be able to push himself upward to exhale, bringing in life-given oxygen. It will be during these bleak moments of exhalation, over a course of three-plus hours when darkness would go across the land, he would utter the seven sayings of Christ on the cross, one of which is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Physical pain is only exacerbated by the mental and emotional pain of the Father in heaven of what he and all of heaven had to do so Jesus could become sin for us by turning his back on his only begotten Son. But listen to me carefully. We're nearly finished. Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain. 
cycles of twisting, joint rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain when, when the tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moved up and down the rough timber. Then another agony begins to occur. Terrible crushing pain deep in the chest of the pericardium, slowly filling up with a serum and begins to compress the heart. One now can remember the 22nd Psalm once again, verse 14, where the Bible speaks of Jesus saying this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, strengthens his legs, takes a deeper breath, utters the seventh saying, and cry, and commits his spirit unto the Father. Beloved, death would come by way of his chest cavities and his lungs filling up with water very slowly. The legionnaire would drive this lance through the fifth intercostal muscle upwards through the pericardium into the heart. And the Bible says, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And I said all that to say this. And I know that wasn't too uplifting tonight, and it shouldn't be. Because we're not talking about our joy tonight. We're talking about his joy. What do you believe now? What are your beliefs tonight on the events of the cross? Pain-free, all-powerful God on the cross just ticking a box, or the man Christ Jesus taking on the sin of the world, the most excruciating example of all that which is evil in the world today. All of this and everything that he experienced on that day is what stood between him and joy. What stood between him and the very thing that brings joy to his life, joy to his heart, forgiving people's sins. Jesus' joy is set before him, enabling him to sit at the right hand of the Father to secure our redemption. By enduring the shame of a despicable death, yet nonetheless he went through it anyway. He did it so that you and I can be forgiven. And this is what brings joy to Jesus. I don't know what brings joy to you. I know what brings joy to me at times, but I can now understand what brings joy to Jesus, and I've never in my life understood it better than I do tonight. Mm -hmm. But when a soul comes to Christ, be it here in the church, be it on the streets of the city center, be it in the field far off through missions that you may support, there's joy in Jesus. You know, the Lord made a remark. There was a group that he sent out that he had given power over the deaf and over the, over the sicknesses and over evil spirits and all that. And they came back saying, man, we cast this devil out. We did this. We did all these great, wonderful, blah, 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 blah. You know what the Lord said back to him? He didn't say, good job, big boy, wonderful. You know what he said to him? He said, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto thee, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I believe I understand now. I see that verse is what Jesus was trying to tell them. My joy is when a soul comes to Christ. Jesus had to endure that cross. Everything that you heard, everything that sounds horrible, everything, in all fairness, that should keep you up at night. That's what was set before him. That's what was set before him to receive his joy because that is what had to happen. For you and I to be accepted in the beloved. Be by your hands tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity and time to be here this evening. We ask of you, Lord, that if you will, 
Take your message and write it upon the table of our heart. Give us guidance, grace, mercy, forgiveness, for we have felt you, Lord. And I pray this evening that the words that have been spoken here this evening, the verses that have been read, Lord, even the songs that we have sung, I beg you to allow them not to be soon forgotten, that we would apply them deep inside of our heart, that the, the description of the crucifixion tonight, Lord, I pray that you would lay hold our hearts that it would never leave. It will change, change how we act, how we react, how we speak, what we do, and how we live. So Lord, I pray that you can allow us to play some small part and bring joy to Jesus and see his soul come to the saving knowledge of his grace. In Jesus Christ's name we ask. Amen. 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 Good deal. pray that the preaching and teaching of the Word of God tonight was a blessing to your heart. Very timely closing him this evening.